0: to machine learning. Okay, I'm gonna sh- uh, use a simple RNN model to make a prediction. So when you pass in the model, your X-test and your X-train, um, you can get their prediction results for both tests and train, and then you can concatenate them together by stacking them on the um, axis equals zero and then you can plot your prediction and set that as a label equal prediction and you can also then concatenate your uh, Y train and Y test together with axis equals zero and that will show your actual. And what you'll see is um, that the uh, prediction is slightly shifted to the uh, right. Now, what is I find really interesting when you compare the actual to the uh, prediction is that the actual was kind of randomly sampled. Uh, in other words, it used the equation sine times 0.2 times t, where t was time, plus 2 times uh, random sampling. But the neural net, the random force calculated probabilities even in this randomness and you can see some similarities in the pattern matching um, even though the data is fairly random. So it seems to be able to find at least the ranges, um, the upper and lower ranges on the bands for the sine equations uh, due to the randomness and so um, does it match? exactly to the data? I don't think so, but it does look like it does find range and so there is some uniformity in the shape. Okay, let me explain how I did this. Okay, so I set up uh, 1,000 iterations, so I want to set a range from 0 to 1,000 and my y component is equal to sine of 0.2 times t plus two times the random of n. I'll plot that out and give it a title. Then once I do that, I'm gonna put the, I'm gonna put that into a data frame and then I'm gonna slice up the data frame. And let me explain what I do on that. Okay, so what I'm doing is I'm looking at um, the number of values TP, and I can set um, test values at eight hundred. So I'll train values at eight hundred. So that means my I'll have eight hundred values for train, and two hundred values for test. That's what that means. Okay. So then I'm going to um, repeat the test by step of three. And I'll then create a, a test and a train set, and then I want to convert this into a matrix. Now, this is the part that's important because it's creating your sequence size. So, your sequence size is how many items that you're looking at for every Y point. So, in this case, I would be looking back three uh, numbers on the y component and to calculate the prediction of what's next. So I'm looking at three of the previous numbers to calculate what the current number on the uh, sine equation will be. So that creates the convert to a sequence. and. This is the same with, uh, if you use with text, you would convert the text to a token and then you would use that those token sequences as a pattern for predicting what the next word will be in the sequence. So you, you input the sequence into the RNN and then based on that sequence, it will Predict the probability of what the next word will be, okay, then what I want to do is now that I've got my x train and y x test, I want a standard uh, scale form would we'll transform and fit the uh, x train and then transform it, and that has the effect now of normalizing the data, so it reduces down the noise. Now when you're dealing with RNN or recurrent neural nets, you need to change the shape. So I'm going to reshape the data um, and set the batch size to one, and I'll pass in the shape of zero and shape one, and then I'm gonna plot it out. And we can see that the plot for the X or the Y train um, is looking pretty similar to what the actual uh, data was for the calculated quantity that I produced here. Okay, so now that we have that, let's go ahead and build our model. So we have a sequential, we have a simple RNN, I'll use 320 units. And then what I do for my input shape is it's a one-dimensional ray, and I pass in the sequence size, and I'll use the activation equals RLU. Um, I had a second layer, and I like to have a large number of uh, neurons. It's not necessarily efficient, but you can see that it takes a little longer to, to train but even at 150 epics, it seems to be able to converge pretty quickly to uh, a certain degree of accuracy. And then I could always do my evaluate and summary. So you have uh, 360,000 parameters, and then you can do your evaluate to determine your uh, accuracy. So you model dot evaluate and then pass in the X test, Y test and that will then calculate your accuracy on your model. Okay. Then once I have that model, I can pass in my X test and X X train, get my predictions and concatenate the predictions together and then plot out my predictions and also then plot out Uh, my original y-train and y-test to see how close the predictions were so that's how you can um, model using simple RNN and I'd like that because the pattern matching is pretty accurate so if you have um, if you have something data that has pretty good uniformity and probability prediction, even though it could be randomly, the data could have some uh, band of randomness to it, the RNN seems to do pretty good at predicting the probability of what the next number will be or the next word. Welcome to machine learning. It's been a week, and uh, quite a week it's been. Um, Had a lot of time to think about the... uh, Um, had a lot of time to think about AI and where it's it's going. And a lot of the uh, work that I was doing is kind of rehashing previous work that I had done. And one thing that I've I've been thinking a lot of is about these distributions of... data, like for example if you can get into a standard distribution or a Gaussian distribution then you have some level of predictability to your trend lines so and I'm talking particularly in time series and uh, well what got me thinking about time series again was um, a question on Tesla stock and they're trying to do some curve fitting and uh Their curve fit wasn't working right. They were using a poly poly feature with a linear regressor. And uh, for some reason their their uh, polygon was not their the second order, third order, sixth order uh, polygon wasn't correctly fitting to the data. So Anyway, I used my algorithm and it fit to the data perfectly. And so it made me kind of wonder what they were trying to do, if they were trying to use a um, a poly feature and have it do something like an LSGM, which I've talked about in the past using LSGM and uh, sequences. <coughs> so you're looking at previous uh time series sequences to make a prediction on the next uh price and uh, the lstm was doing pretty good for its prediction capability Um, and so i kind of like the lstm just for the fact that it has a memory it remembers the previous state. So you have a forget gate, you have a memory gate, and then you have a uh, uh, a uh, gate that uh, output gate. And so those those gates in the LSTM work really good to help the network retain what is important. So I've actually been thinking about what if you build a LSTM network bi-directional uh, and convert like text to speech so you take your your text you convert it and let's say you train and you, you train it so you have two networks you have a BERT network and then you have LSTM and LSTM can answer questions generalized questions so if the BERT BERT system can't answer the question, then it defaults to the LSTM network for uh, question and answer. So let's say, you know, you're dealing with someone uh, in mental health and they've had to be, go to a hospital and they're on medications and, you know, you have staff on site that they get to talk to, but they don't get to talk to staff all the time. Uh, and they don't really get to talk about what they really want to talk about because kind of staff, you know, says, "Well, that's for uh, you know, that's for someone that you need to contact once you're out. You can get started in therapies, and they have kind of this referral system that goes on where they have their limited amount of skill that they can do." And then they defer to people of higher skill, and that's always been the case for most of the craftsman work. But with GPT-3, you all of a sudden enter into this realm where, depending on how you talk to the machine, will determine its level of expertise that it will return. The expertise is in embedded within the neural machinery. So the question is, is how to access it. So what I was thinking of is having these, uh, environment where the patients have access to an I- iPad, uh, maybe it's an iPad in, in the wall or whatever that, uh, you know, it can't be damaged. You can't, they, they, I guess you could punch the iPad and then break it that way, but I guess the same is true of, of anything in the, in the room. But, uh, um. You know, maybe you have it set up with just a keyboard and then, you know, behind some hardened glass or something. But uh, you, the, the person, if they want to talk to the machine, they can talk to it. Now, it's obviously going to be monitored by a person to see if the, the conversation gets abusive or uh, inappropriate. And, and, and those services can be shut down. From a, a command center. So, you know, if, if, it, if the conversation is going bad, to say, you know, the, the machine just shuts down. So, you have three things you have human in the loop, you have uh, Bert that's ha- doing question and answer to very specific psychological questions. Maybe they want to know, am I crazy? And then they talk about different types of uh, mental disorders. Because one of the things I found with People with mental disorder or mental disease is, it's like a sickness. They need to be, uh, go through a process to overcome the way they think. And so, you know, they can interact with the machine, get information, they can get good theories, they can get answers to their questions. And if they ask a question that's more generalized, the GPT-3 kicks in and uh, it it attempts to answer from its 195 billion parameters it's trained on. So, you know, it has a a pretty deep understanding of uh, human knowledge. Not a complete understanding, obviously, but it has a pretty good corpus of words and concepts and probabilities that it's beginning to create. I use uh, OpenAI Codex a lot to answer questions for Stack Overflow, because what it does is it kind of points me in the right direction, and and I like it. Sometimes it'll get the answer spot on, but a lot of times it's trying to answer the question and its approach is correct, but the implementation is wrong. And so that's what I, I, I do like it. Uh, for example, there was a question on multi index uh, from tuples, dot from tuples. And what I had to do there was uh, uh, create my tuple pairs for my uh, two level index. So I have a zero level, one level. And then once I did that, I, I grabbed the data uh, that represents rows underneath the uh, hierarchical index and add that into a data frame plus the index and it correctly uh, formulates the the data and then I put it in a pivot table to uh, bring the index uh, horizontally so it was uh, it was a good good uh, Exercise, but what what I found was the approach on that was that Codex said uh, you know use the multi uh, pandas dot multi index, which I did, and then I went and explored how that worked, and went to geek to geek and got some examples, something like that, and and uh, was able to solve the problem. So. Again, this AI is a nice reference tool. It's a, it's a helping with your thinking process. And um, it becomes this extension of the mind. And so it is not the mind. Definitely not the mind. You're, you're, you have the intelligence. You have the uh, cognitive capability. You have the perception. You have the context. You have the critical thinking that, you know, uh, narrows down. The solutions but what it does for you is that it uh, provides multiple almost like perceptions so I would say it's a increase in the number of perceptions in the terms of its ability to respond well and I like the fact that open codex um, allows me to answer some of these really hard questions on stack overflow and what I'm starting to see is, I, as I've answered you know, about 700 questions now, um, that I'm starting to, my brain is starting to kind of know what the approach should be just by looking at the problem. And that's kind of the beauty of the probabilistic thinking is that it can uh, pull or group things, group solutions together based on input so why couldn't it do that with someone with mental disease why can't it listen to sentences uh, and try to group things together based on uh, statements that are made by the individual okay now that's one idea the other idea I had was uh, looking at you know biofeedback. Now, in the 80s, they had this machine that would provide biofeedback, and then you'd have biorhythms, and if your biorhythms were off, you know, that might be a good indication that this might be a hazardous day for you, so you wouldn't want to do anything uh, of high risk. It's almost like the other days, uh, a man said to me while I was leaving leaving the temple, he said, uh, be careful out there, and it was almost like a warning, like, Was something bad going to happen? Do I need to be extra cautious? So I was extra cautious watching and I started noticing uh, bad driving behavior, aggressive driving behavior. And and it was actually kind of a a challenge to get from point A to point B because of that statement he made. And normally maybe I would have uh, been exposed to that level of risk but I wouldn't have been paying attention to it. Maybe I just assumed that, you know, people are in a hurry and they're making bad choices and, uh, or I'm, I'm in interfering with their ability to get from point A to point B and I need to be more cooperative or something along that line. So uh, it's not always their fault and I'm right. You know, there could be contributory reasons that they're acting that way. But I was thinking about how maybe what you could have is a device that measures the brain, the brain activity of a normal, healthy individual when they sleep. And like if you have irregular sleep patterns or su- such, you know, you have your CPAP machine, for example, that's monitoring your breathing and it's helping you breathe at night but what if you have insomnia? There's a lot of people that have insomnia right now and they get maybe two, three hours of sleep. And you know, it's not regular, complete sleep. It's not that kind of sleep. When you wake up in the morning, you feel really good. It's, it's kind of survival sleep. You get like, you know, just enough to survive. And so by evening time, you're, you're exhausted, you're tired and, uh, and You know, you don't really get that break that you need. And, uh, and so I've been thinking about these uh, AI machines that can assist with the neural activity of your brain while you sleep and try to help you um, through maybe electric impulse on, on the brain or some sort of, of uh, ability to help you monitor your brain activity while you sleep and try to keep you in that normal range of sleep now is that brainwashing or is that neural programming you know I don't know that's that's a weird question to try to address you know how conditioning occurs with the brain I guess you could talk to a psychologist and ask them you know what is conditioning and and how does that work with the brain but um you know, it, there there is there is some uh, interesting research that could be done in terms of uh, of uh, maybe stimulating the neurons in the brain so that you can get a good night's sleep. I don't know if it could be with sound. Uh, some sounds uh, people like to listen to mute, certain music, and it seems to put them in a a certain beta wave range that they can now sleep um, maybe it's also you know the level of quietness I know like like people like to put things that block the sounds you know people getting up in the middle of the night use the bathroom or turning on lights um, all can affect your sleep disruption and so by having uh, maybe the AI help you with your sleep, that might be a device that, that could be very useful. And if it could be sold to the mass market, then you have entry, um, and there and more research in that area would surge forward as companies begin to understand sleep disorder, just like mental disorders. There's so much research now with the data that's being presented that new theories are starting to to emerge and better techniques for addressing uh, addiction, mental disease chemical disorders but this information is there but it's hard to get into the general public's hands because it's very specialized and so the more specialized you get the less the pool of people that listen to you become, and so even in this podcast, as I've got very specialized in like LSTMs and deep learning networks, there is a group of people that they work in that every day, and they are watching the neural machinery, and they're thinking about the algorithms, and they're they're trying different strategic or tactical approaches to improve efficiency. And they're working in large systems, and they understand what I'm talking about. So maybe they have a PhD, maybe they have a master's, maybe they have several PhDs. I know an individual that has three PhDs, and that he's done um, work with neural nets to write code. And the neural net does very well. It's writing lots of code. And so, if you believe that neural nets can't write code, you're wrong. They they can and and they will write code uh, as they are trained and programmed and given assignments or tasks to adjust and become dynamic, they they will be able to write code. So, um, and we've seen this code generation for a long time. We've seen it with with, uh, uh, 4G where it will take one language and it'll translate it into a lower level language like C or Java or JavaScript. And uh, you know, they, it's commercial; it costs money to be able to access those tools. But they are capable of code generation and large amounts of accurate code that uh, businesses run. Well, that's that's great that you can run a business by getting inputs and then writing a few lines of code and creating then these low-level structures that can be run on a machine. And I think that that's where the AI will be, will continue to move is writing more code, uh, generating more code up and, and helping humans or people understand how to abstract thought into uh, code or language, because that's what code is, is a language. And I, just like I was speaking Japanese the other day, and I was explaining to another individual that the characters create certain sounds, and to watch the characters for figuring out how many sounds there are. Now, they're, they're Caucasian, and they don't know Japanese, and so they're kind of scared when they look at a japanese name cuz it's hard hard to say you know like nakayama you know you look at that name and you're like well how do i how do i say that you know nakayama you know how many sounds are in there how many syllables are there in there how many vowels but it was interesting cuz i showed up the uh, there's hiragana and katakana they have both symbols but i the one symbol, I think it's the hirakana, is the uh, one that has breaks kind of the word up into sounds. And so I could show them that, that there's three different sounds to that word. And so then when they were trying to say it, they could just say, oh, there's three different sounds to this word. They look at it, the character, and there's three different sounds. And then I would help them through those, those words. And one individual said to me after, he goes, thank you so much for helping me. We work really great as a team. So there was a lot of friendship that was built through this cooperation. And that's one of the kind of the amazing things when you're in a learning process, and I think that's also true for machines, is that we will be grateful to the machine for what it can do for us. I mean, we use machines to to drive, and no one thinks... A second question about the value of a machine to get from point A to point B. You're sitting on a steel frame, it has a combustible engine, it's turning gears. Those gears have different ratios. It's uh, pow- transmitting power from the pistons to the drivetrain, down to the axle that's turning the wheel, the wheel that's in contact to the rope. So all those things that are, are so uh, fantastic we don't even think second thought about the fact that we use, we're using the machine to get from one area to another in comfort in a warm environment in a, in a quiet environment and we're processing information while we drive And I think that's the way AI is going to be in the information highways, is we're going to be using the AI, we'll be talking to it, it'll be assimilating information for us, and it will be writing code for us to allow us to have certain functionality. We may need certain functionality, and it may have to generate that functionality for us, compile it, and then make that that capacity, capability. Accessible to us, and it might be open source. So maybe it it downloads some open source module, uh, writes the code, and then we we can interact now with the machine to do a particular task. Maybe it it, it is generating a RESTful end, endpoint that's communicating with the database a certain way, and and uh, and we need that capability. And so I think that programming will be more visual, as I've said in the past, that things will be more visual and we'll be interacting and connecting things and watching how information is flowing through those connections, just like we do right now with endpoints and RESTful and GraphQL and, you know, uh, graph database, NoSQL, et we're, we're We're watching how things are streaming from the front end to the back end and and those are complex processes to connect all the pieces and with uh, AI you can you can get these code generators that can create the pieces for you quickly and so you know uh, they may not be 100% right just like I was saying with the uh, A- open AI codex you know it, it, it wasn't correct 100% of the time, but it was good in, in the sense that it kind of set up the framework and then I finished it off. So we'll always need you know, human beings in the loop to, to kind of finish off the, the complexity to assess whether or not we think that uh, uh, things are working according to the way we expect. And, uh, and then we can also use the machine for testing. that's kind of programming nerd stuff but uh that's the world that we live in is nerd nerdville you know the computer the it is the business and I, i still keep trying to say that our company is that the it is the business and you know what do we what do we do we process invoices for subcontractors we we uh do job cost billing for projects we do change orders what is that? That's informational base. There's lots of data entry that's going on. There has to be a lot of accuracy. Uh, There are a lot of steps in these processes. And, you know, some of those steps take a, you know, there are quite a few sequences to those steps and they take time. And so, you know, streamlining those processes through information automation is the way to go. And then analysis tools to analyze trend and understand impact are also very important. And so you know you can see this need for more analysis work of the data, more people that are thinking about and analyzing data critically, and you know you're starting to see more jobs that are surfacing that are requesting people with business intelligence solution capability, but not just to write the, not just to write the. Uh, interface for the visualization, which can be Power BI or Tableau or Domo or, you know, there's a number of different tools now that are uh, providing different visual interpretations of the data or presentations of the data and allowing for interaction. But uh, you're also seeing the uh, kind of this introduction to AI. As I've said, you know, with Power BI allowing you to run Python scripts, you know that's really powerful because you know if you have a good machine learning, Keras, TensorFlow knowledge, then you can start feeding some of this data into uh, neural nets and then getting classifications. So maybe the neural net takes the uh, the selection that the persons. Going through, and it feeds that uh, in, as an input into the neural net, and, and then outputs some classification. So you could have multi-classification or binary classification, or in some cases, uh, you know, you're just wanting to do uh, timeline prediction. So neural net uh, shows the forecast, or it shows maybe some ARMA forecasting based on a certain order level. And uh, and you know maybe you're in search of uh, some uh, anomalies, like for example, Sigma, where it's looking at uh, statistical control, and from that statistical control, it's trying to determine variance. And so maybe with a, you know with the data, it can identify areas. Where variance is occurring and bring those areas to your attention because data by itself just collecting large amounts of data by itself is pretty much meaningless you need to have a language or a context or a framework in which to or tell a story from the data in order to make the data meaningful I learned that from a book I read a long time ago about telling data stories and, I, and you know when I was a raising my kids, I used to always tell them fables uh, from, you know, ch- child's fables that I read, and then I would create my own, and they would always be excited, Dad, tell us the, the story of the three pigs again, you know, and I'd always have some variation of it, like when the, the pigs were villains, or the pigs were heroes, or, uh, you know, so, some aspect of the pig's life, and, and they always loved it, and they would always asked me for these uh, these stories when we were on road trips together. And and those are great memories. But I think also, you know, in some ways the data is like that too with businesses that they need to hear the story. And then the question is, is, how can they know if the data is believable? And that's where the data science comes in, where you have different tools to show confidence levels, uh, confidence bands, do comparisons, maybe you're comparing multiple things together. And, uh, And from that data analysis, then they get a better idea on how to make a decision. Because ultimately the data is going to lead to some sort of action. And if it doesn't, then the data is not very useful. So you're just building another report, just another report. And endless reporting problems is the world that you live in. So you're looking at uh, a problem in a report that's giving the wrong number. you got to go in and look at your SQL and then figure out, you know, if you correctly understood the data structures and the data um, in order to extract the data out. So, you know, you're ending up writing lots of... Uh, Outer applies and cross applies and small little snippets of SQL and subquery to you know extract this data out that you need and there's lots of duplication as a result and and, and you know duplication leads to potential error and lots of rework and so uh, you know as things become more complex we have to start thinking about tools and abstraction and working to understand data before we we're faced with crises. Like the other day I had a request and and it was a strange one but he wanted to, to see data that I had created and so I sent him over and there was a lot of data a lot of fields and it's just because the the costing is, structure is, is huge, and, and I wanted to know exactly what was needed on the report and was sent back somewhat lazily to me that, here, just look at this one. This is an existing report. So then I started analyzing the existing report and realized how the structure that was created by the previous programmer or developer report generator and um, I followed that pattern and then after I got it all done and I was happy and pleased that it worked, I uh, was told that that wasn't the requirement and so I was all upset and uh, had to go rewrite my queries and I was writing excessively complex queries and I realized I had to just calm down and, uh, and look for a better way and so by the end of the day, I had found the better way and uh, calmed down. And, and that's one of the important things to remember with data science: is don't get bent out of shape if uh, if your manager, you know, asks you to change things. You know, we're all about change, and so you should plan for that even in your query, even in your reporting. Uh, design it so that it's flexible. If you need to move something to a column, you know, like a group, uh, a matrix report, you know, no problem. Just spin it and make a matrix report. If you need to move it into unstacked view, then you do maybe a hierarchy report. Or if you need to, you know, do it in an aggregate form, you do it in a list form, but don't trap yourself into one way. And, and that it can only be done one way. You know, Have that flexibility with your data so that you can set up your data uh, to be filtered by the report in such a way that you can display it in almost any way you want. And that's the critical thing I took away from that experience is not to get into a, a fighting, a word match with the boss, but to, to just say, you know, yes sir, and, and then go out and make it, and rework, using the tools, rework it so that uh, it, it, uh, it uh, will function correctly and then give value to the company. And, and ultimately, that's the thing that you want to be asking as you're doing this work, is am I adding value to the company? And the day that you're not adding value to the company is the time, day you need to be looking for another job. And don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of looking for another job if you're not adding value to the company, because your you tight ha- life is too short to waste on uh, a, a course of path that isn't going anywhere. So, if you're impacting the company, you're getting good projects, you're uh, creating demand, that you're in the you're in. The right action zone. You're at the gemba. You're at the place where the action is occurring. If you're if you're uh, doing code maintenance and uh, you know you're changing colors to please a senior management, or you're spending lots of time um, doing things that aren't adding much value to the larger group, then maybe you're in the wrong specific domain of work, and uh, you need to broaden your horizons get more into the machine learning, AI uh, programming world, and start to understand some of the new approaches that are being taken you know, you've got uh, a new version of C Sharp and there's going to be a lot of language syntax to learn from, from that new language, and even now when I look at link code after working with Python I, I, I kind of feel like that the world between Pandas and link need to get closer. Link is still very terse in my mind compared to Pandas in order to manipulate data because Pandas uses uh, functions like apply, transform, map, and they're really very flexible functions uh, to do a lot of the manipulation you need in the data you got group by to do your aggregation and um, it it is a a very simple way to do a lot of the framework type of transformations that you need to do and so I think again Pandas leads the pack you know it it, it, uh, really has done a good job in its design and and for that reason you know that the world of Link needs to begin to pay attention to the the Python way of doing things and uh, I don't know if industry will ever move totally to that approach but I can definitely see an advantage in simplifying way we do the accessing. I, I it's very difficult, for example, in link to do a left joint. It shouldn't be. It should be very simple and, and why they've made it so complex to do left joints, I don't know. It's very difficult to do group eyes in Link. It's very difficult to do aggregations. And these are things that are very easy to do in pandas. Um uh, Pandas is very easy to manipulate two data sets using merge or concatenate. It's very difficult to do that in Link. And so, you know, if you maybe do a side-by-side comparison and show, okay, this is how you would do it in Link, this is how you would do it in Pandas. uh, You know, maybe it becomes now something that you work towards where you start realizing that the consumer base is migrating towards the simpler approach because you know the programming time is expensive so they're in a hurry and they're using the, the techniques and tools that um, they're, they're familiar with and so rather than trying to hold on to a kind of archaic way of doing things you move to the more modern and streamlined way of doing Well, one other thing I really like, too, is uh, uh, the fact that uh, you have such a good environment in both Pandas and Link for understanding what's going wrong. So you have error codes. You know, error codes are kind of interesting because you get these kind of Obscure error codes, and then you go search Stack Overflow, and you find the error code, and then you see how someone solved the problem. And it's sometimes the way they solve the problem is really quite amazing, and uh, it just shows you how intelligent people are, and they and you know kind of that intelligence of the group, because maybe maybe the answer was always in the documentation. And you just had to search the documentation or read the documentation. And as an engineer, you know, you do a lot of reading and trying to understand an abstraction. Uh, and abstraction. But it's always interesting to see examples, to learn by example, read the documentation, read what people are saying. And just taking in that uh, approach, you know. the. the kind of the AI approach of solving problems where, you, you know, you're trained against a large corpus of knowledge and you give these condensed answers and the condensed answers at first will almost seem untruthful. Like, oh, this person's just joking with me. I, you know, like I solved that problem with the multi-index and the person that I, I was talking about to said, well, it's not what i want i needed to have it pivoted at the top so i just put a i just took the the resulting data frame and did a pivot dot pivot table and set my two uh columns to uh to the portions of the multi-index and voila it pivoted and did put it in the exact format but see that's the difference between an expert and a novice is that a novice doesn't know what they're doing and an expert does. But when the expert shares their information, the novice thinks that it's not truthful because they don't know it. And because they don't know it, it must not be true. And that's what the the big issue with AI right now is, is people do not know AI and therefore they fear it it's untrue it can't be accurate it can't be useful it can't be good and uh, they're wrong it is useful it's being used everywhere it's been used for a long time signal processing has been in almost all electronics Uh, it's very assistive and it is the future so you know, if you're, you're listening to this podcast, you're wondering whether you need to invest in the data science. Yes, you do. You need to invest in your career in data science. Uh, and, you know, site is very good for understanding programming languages and concepts. But as the world gets more complex, we're going to need to understand more things. We're going to expose our brain to... To more data we're going to have more memorization you know could it be that someday that you know a million things i've often wondered that you know could you actually understand a million different concepts in your brain uh, well you look at a senior programmer and, and they understand they understand a lot and uh, they understand a lot about the languages too all right till next week keep coding